So I appreciate uh, you showing up on this near holiday period. <clears throat> and I, the heat being what it is, um, we can make ourselves as comfortable as we can. So we're going to just open it up to uh, general questions or comments <clears throat> or dialogues, if you'd like. Uh, and if you could be, uh, cons- if, it's, if it's a question you would like to ask, to be as concise with the question as you can, because I have to repeat it uh, for the tape. <clears throat> and so it's good to sort of formulate, try to get it down to a kind of compact, essential few words. Uh, if it involves uh, part of a tale or a story, that's okay. We'll do the best we can with it. So let me just open it up and see if any, anyone has anything. Yes. Uh, just a question, Rodney. Uh, the hindrances and the deep violence, uh, are they basically two different, just two terms referring to the same experience, uh, experiences, or is there a difference the question is uh, the hindrances and the defilements. <laughs> We're getting into sort of the, uh, sorry, you know, when you go into a library, uh, you go into the stacks. I remember the university's uh, libraries had stacks way back in there, and, and some of them got cobwebs. I mean, they're like so ba- so archaic that uh, you 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 think nobody's been back there. <laughs> well. Terms like defilements uh, sort of come through the uh, Buddhist tradition as sort of archaic stacks, right, way back. Uh, I don't particularly um, use those words. I think that they may have been appropriate uh, at some point in the literature. But uh, rather um, to look at whether it's a hindrance or a defilement, uh, whether in truth the thing itself defiles or the thing itself hinders. So when you bring any mind state or state of mind or pattern of mind or attitude of mind or belief in mind, and when it's examined, <clears throat> uh, it when you make it conscious, when it's unconscious, all things are defiled, right? All things act to defile oneself. In other words, to hold you um, embedded within the thought and reactive patterns and fear strategies we have uh, to separate ourselves from it. But when things are examined, nothing is defiled. Nothing is a hindrance. Nothing, everything becomes open. Everything becomes approachable. Everything becomes harmless, really, in essence. And another way of saying it is everything becomes empty empty of what we have invested it to mean for our life. When, it, when something or a state of mind or a pattern has a tale associated with it, has part of our story associated with it, then, it, then when it arises in it and isn't seen consciously for, with the harmlessness that conscious awareness can perceive from, then it will mean a whole set of trials and tribulations for our life and reactive patterns associated with our history of that particular thing. And, and th- when it's unconscious, it defiles or it hinders. But when it's made conscious, there is no such thing. There, and there is nothing we need to get over because there's nothing wrong with what it essentially is. So I would prefer to look at it from that way 
rather than from the unconscious perspective of something that is tragically within us that needs to be resolved. Uh, because nothing really can be worked from that unconscious reactivity. That's just act, reacting more in the uh, historical reference that we've always given it. Uh, so bring it front and center. Uh, and even now, I know most of you have had the gradual experience of seeing more and more component parts of your mind and that those things which quite likely have driven you throughout your life really aren't that tragic to have occur. They're not that scary anymore. They sort of resolve themselves. And uh, somebody with some degree of experience in meditation uh, welcomes any reactive pattern, not because the thing itself is fearful, but because we know that we're investing the thing with fear. And the way to divest it from that reaction is to re-examine it, to open it, to let it enter us, to abide there, to not resist it. So when something is not resisted, because the fear comes from us, not the thing itself, so to not resist something means we have to drop the fear response to something, allowing it to be its essential nature. Essentially, all things are harmless. And I, I much prefer that way of thinking rather than sort of running through a list of what we call the hindrances or defilements. Because it, when we call something by that name, when they come up, there's a problem with it. I've got a hindrance attack. You know, I've got, this is a defilement I have to get over. We're always thinking in terms of some blockage, some way that uh, some worry we're being obscured, something that we need to uh, do some uh, maneuvering around. Nothing. If anything was essentially a defilement, then there would be no oneness, would there? All it takes is one thing that we can't get over, and there's no such thing as oneness. If, we, if to bring heaven and earth together, all things, all things, the 10,000 things, meaning all things, as it says in the Tao, must be seen in their essence. And what is their essence? As long as we're seeing from the sense of self, we're seeing things not essentially the way they are because the sense of self is already a reactive pattern to the way things are. That's the reason we feel as if we are watching the world. So already we've set up the world being external to us through our reactive patterns to it, our resistance to it. But as we begin to understand that there is nothing essentially harmful out there, then there can become a deep residing and abiding relaxation that isn't conditioned upon what experience I might be having because we have seen deeply enough to know that all experiences are, are harmless, even fear itself. And that there's a kind of knowing uh, that is unshakable when that's seen. 
and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because experiences are not the point of meditation at all. I hope we already realize that what we're not trying to accrue certain experiences. We're not trying to cultivate certain qualities of experience within us. We don't need to leap forward and proclaim our meditation based upon an experience we might have because that's the wrong end of what we're doing. That's what our life has been about. Up until now, our life has been about experiences. It's been about what experiences we're going to have, which ones we want to avoid, which ones we want more of, knowing that all of life is an experience. How we are relating to life right now is by having an experience of it. And some experiences are, are attractive and others are not aversive. And so as long as we relate to our meditation as some sense of tampering with experience, we are really looking at it from the wrong end. From the wrong, we're looking at it from the worldly side from the worldly patterns. And therein there will be defilements and hindrances and cultivated states that I have to and this and that. But what is it that holds all experience? What is the foundation of all experience? It's interesting, Last yesterday uh, I was doing a beginning class and sometimes I forget, you know, it's been 30, over 30 years of practice and I forget what an unexperienced mind looks like in its raw form, you know, just as it walks off the street. So <laughs> there was this young man, he's very young, he's very sincere, he just said, you know, I, I, don't, I don't understand how thought could be separated out, that we could actually, that thought, that you could live without thought. In fact, to him, the very thought of living without thought was essentially death. And he says, I, I don't, I, in my mind, not to think is to die. <laughs> I said, well, you're going to have to test that theory if you want to go anywhere in this meditation. <laughs> but you see, you're laughing because you know, don't you? There's a knowing in you already. Already there's a knowing in you, you see? But take you back however many months or years in which you walked off the street, you didn't know that. Already there is a sense that there is something that holds the mind, that holds all things, which is itself not the experience, right? It holds the experience. And when we stop reacting to the experience, it melts. The experience melts into it. Like the Wicked Witch. I like that image. I'm melting, I'm melting. But as long as we have a sense of a witch, whoa, we've got a real problem. But if we just sit there and watch it, not really watch it, abide within it. I don't really like the sense of watching. It's too dualistic. This is a sense of not resisting it. Okay, no more. That's it. Open the heart to it. All things 
are proclaimed the same through an open heart. All things are seen through an open heart. This is, what is an open heart means? means not resisting, not closing ourselves off from something. In this tremendous sense of spaciousness arises because when our heart is enclosed, what has been locked in there waiting like a genie in a bottle comes out magnanimously, magnanimously. Filling the void. Filling the void. I much prefer speaking about meditation from that. In fact, I, I'm kind of going on here. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> but I find it very helpful to hear to use words that we don't normally associate necessarily with meditation. You read the text, you get certain ideas of what meditation is, and then you hear another word instead of the word that you have uh, sort of arrested that particular experience within, and you hear a different word and it frees you from thinking of the meditation as being the description that you had originally given it. And my job as a teacher is to keep getting you seeing it from different perspectives so that you never arrest with it as being, oh, I now understand it. I got it, I got it down now, right? Which many of us do, don't we? To keep you light on your, our, to keep us light on our feet. To keep us questioning, delighting in a question. In fact, if there is one way that I point us, I hope people understand this, it's not to settle in an established relationship to ourselves, but to constantly insert a question into ourselves, which raises the dust storm all up again. We would much more, we're much more prone to want an answer and to have an exact relationship to ourselves relationship to our mind, relationship to a problem, you know, and, and a set blueprint on how to work with that. But the dust storm of where the rug keeps pulling out from under us keeps us from looking at ourselves as an experience. If we look at ourselves as a question, we cannot have an experience be the answer. Get a sense? And therefore, everything, nothing ever arrests which is true meditation. Okay, yes. Um, I preface this that I'm a beginner. Um, I've uh, continued to ask myself the irrelevant question, am I doing this right? Yes. Um, yes. And I'm noticing away from sitting changes in my life that are Positive. Yes. Specifically, right before I took your beginning course. Yes. The issue of uh, my elderly, sick mother and right. making decisions about her living situation came up, and I was very resistant. Had a lot of problems yes. with my sibling. Yes. And it's now come up again in a yes. serious way. And my 
response, my feelings about it, my interaction is so different. Yes, good, good. I mean, in such yes. a... Um, and so be, should I be concise? Yeah. With, yeah. That's okay. No, no, it's okay. No, no, you don't have to... So you want me to just talk about what you... Yeah, okay, yeah. sure. So the question was... Um, you know, uh, she thinks of herself as a beginner and she wonders whether she is doing it right, yet she sees that uh, from experiences, uh, how she was in prior similar situations, that there has been a change. Okay, so I, I don't want to discount how we see ourselves evolving. Uh, it's very important, especially in for someone who's new, you're not going to do, why would you do this thing unless you saw some practical changes that occurred in your life in relationship to this very difficult work that we do, right? So for a long time we're fed upon those changes and we say, wow, you know, I am changing and there are delight even however long we've been practicing, they're like little mileposts. We go, well, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, act, I'm reacting not, I'm not reacting as strongly or I feel my heart open more or more settled, I'm more grounded, I'm um, more accommodating, less judgmental. Lots of different ways to associate this thing. So that carries us for a long period of time. <clears throat> but then the question, am I doing this right, is a very different question, you see, because it's not so much that the question is wrong, is that we're not really perceiving what's behind the question, which is the sense that I am wrong and have never got, I don't mean this is taking it into the extreme, which is not, yeah, right. Okay, so, so there's something wrong with me, you know, it was really what we mean, and I haven't gotten very many things right in a short period of time in my life, Therefore, you know, I need constant uh, uh, signs that I am doing this according to how it should be done. And so we look out, we ask our friends, we compare ourselves to others, and we really get lost in the pain of the expression of me rather than looking at that pain. Do you, do you get a sense? That behind the question, am I doing this right, is a faltering sense of egoic state, right? One, that's, one that feels um, insufficient in some way. Hmm? That's where I would point you. I would point you to what it is, who it is that's asking the question from pain. Because no matter how much you do, if you don't look at that particular um, psychic stance we take with ourselves, no matter how much practice you do for however many years, and I've seen it well into decades of practice, you will still be dragging the burden of that pain with you every turn of the spiritual wheel, asking yourself that same question. Because the self-confidence, the there is no right. You can't get it wrong. You see? And there's no qualifying experience that one has to prove that one is right and has then is doing good meditation. No matter how practiced we are, 
at some point we will still get lost in thought. Okay? If you hold that as your banner, well, then you'll never succeed. Right? So what, what is it, you see? See, then the question becomes, how am I forming myself in pain? Let me look at how I keep forming myself through pain. That's much better to investigate that than to ask questions from that to assert the competence of your meditation. Right? Okay, so what is this, see? What, what is this sense of pain that I have? Then we start that journey. And you start it off with a question. What is this? You get curious about it. And believe me, I'm not picking on you. As many people in this room... That's how many people hold the same question. All right? So let's not... No, I know you're not, but I just want other people to, to own to their own. Okay, so we go, what is this? This hurt. See, now the journey... Now the journey is undermining the very sense in which the self is built. That's the correct journey. Not asserting our meditation by the experiences in comparison to others' experiences. But looking backward, pulling out the rug from the very thing that's having the experience. And we do that through the psychological pain because psychological pain is where we are most form in our, formed in our resistance to life. Right? We want to get it right. There's a whole bit, there's, right? There's an emphatic sense of resistance to getting it wrong or to have anything but what we think is a certifiable right experience. So you see how that just creates all kinds of trouble for ourselves. So let me look at let me look back that way. Look at the film that's still covering the lens. If I don't look at the film covering the lens, I will never be able to see clearly through the lens. Okay? Okay, good one. Yeah, you bet. Hi, yes. No, you. Yeah. Talk about pain. Um, yes. Okay. So, like tonight, driving, uh, leaving work to the house, all of a sudden anxiety it becomes physical. Yes. And you thank God there's tonight. Thank God there's what? There's tonight. We right. still, uh, even when checking the computer, make sure this was open tonight. Yes. So, I'm here. On Sundays, also, that pain comes back. Yes. Yeah. Sunday, da, 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 da. Doesn't help, does it? Right. And I'm thinking, I'm hoping it's going to go Yeah. No, no, is that something? Right, okay. So, uh, we will, we'll, we'll dialogue a little bit about this, okay? But just let me bring the people who are listening to the tape up. To... Okay, so she has had a kind of an anxiety uh, attack. Um, and uh, she, her hope is that uh, she can, through her um, laser-beamed perception, can melt this uh, attack or uh, just make it dissolve or pop it like a bubble. But it doesn't. In fact, it might even get worse because when you actually acknowledge the pain that's there, you're, and you're not running from it, distracting yourself from it. You feel it, and it doesn't feel like anything that you'd like to watch. But 
the rules are that that's what you're supposed to do, but then you have this this scheme in mind. So the mind's very tricky, and it says, okay, I will watch it if, in order to. Fair enough? I want to watch this in order for it to go away. So I won't ever be anxious again. So it's kind of like we're playing um, a video game. Anxiety. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> I turn around this bin and, you know, there are something on the ceiling. You know, it's like. <laughs> so we have to be very, we have to be very cautious that this is not about the elimination of defilements. Okay? So what it's about, what is it about? What is it about, you see? First of all, we acknowledge the fact that we're having difficulty with, we're in, we're in fear in that moment. Now, can you tell me, do you have a sense of where that fear is coming from? Yes. Loneliness. Sure. Yes, really. Yes. 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 Right. Yes. 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 And so, uh, um, the the experience of anxiety is that experience of the, uh, sort of being isolated, and away and on your own. Yeah. yeah but if we don't, we don't, it's not happening in the past. It's happening now. You're, the past is coming through the present, but you're believing in it, investing in the experience that are similar to the past. The conditions are the are similar in some way to your mind. It's a holiday, it's Sunday or something. You're by yourself, isolated. Instead of running from that and calling girlfriends and bringing in a whole sense of entertainment, I would direct you a different way, but only in your own time, dear. No, don't rush this way unless you feel, um, invi- unless it's inviting to you, unless it's interesting and inviting to you. So I want to know what this is about. This is this. Many of us have that residual childhood feelings, conditions, especially around loneliness and isolation. And given the right conditions, those things come back up. And we can p- apply all our little Dharma talks internally, but it really doesn't help. You can't talk yourself out of this because inside of there, there's some investment of, of identity that is um, at horror in being alone and being n- n- disconnected from other people, maybe. Right? Okay, so... Very gently, instead of getting on the phone, you're welcome to do that. You okay? Oh, yes. Okay. Dance with it. I, I, 
dance with. Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes, that's fine. That's fine to take the edge off of it's fine to do that. Um, but what you don't want to is foster the the perception. You see, you can get so lonely, then you think, oh, I'm, and you, tr- you close your drapes and you put on music that, you don't want to do that. Because that just feeds it. That's just kind of, you can, you can be in that long enough so that it becomes an identity, which is not what you're doing. You're going the other way. But you know what? If you go the other way, it's still an identity. It's just not a pleasant one. Some people can actually find pleasant identity within their loneliness. For, I don't, don't ask me how, but they do. <laughs> but, but you don't, so you want to, you want, you, so I feel, okay, wait a second here. I'm being controlled. Something in the past, and I can certainly bring up those memories, have led to me having this experience now. I look around, you know, none of my past childhood experiences of whatever happened are really present now, but the memories associated with this context on a Sunday, holiday or whatever. Okay, so then let me go into this. You see, now I'm moving in a different direction. What is this thing? And if it gets you know, literally to dance with it, you can literally dance with it as your partner, or you can sit down and say, come on, sit down here, sit down here, loneliness. You see, when you do that, Suddenly you have your best friend. Because you realize that your life depends upon knowing this thing. And instead of it having been for a whole number of decades your worst enemy, we're going to befriend it. What does it feel like? Where do I feel it in my body? What's my chest? What, What... Emotions come up here. What assumptions am I making about me as this arises? That I'm desperate, that I'll never meet somebody, that I'm destined to live. All those things which, if I write them down, which I really encourage you to do, you think you're writing down the story of your life, but what you're writing down is the obvious falsehood that has been driving you. So I can never, you know, all of these completely unsubstantiated reasonings that the mind just, because it doesn't want to see it, it runs from it, and therefore it never brings it to the light of consciousness, and therefore it never proves it to be untrue. When I'm willing to look at this thing, it all starts falling apart. It can't sustain itself. As I look at this assumption, I look at that, I look at the feeling, there's nothing... I. Don't let the past confiscate me and pull me back. I just stay present to it. Suddenly this thing starts panicking because it can't keep us moving in the same reactive direction that it has since time immemorial. Now, again, there are times when it can get too strong and then the phone is there for you to call girlfriend. 
and you know exactly what you're doing. Well, this is too much. Hello, Judy, how are you doing? <laughs> beautiful, beautiful way just to get, take the edge off of it. Right? So use practical life solutions, but you know exactly what you're doing, and use investigation not to disseminate it, not to eliminate it, but to befriend it. If you want to befriend something, you're not interested in eliminating. You're interested in getting to know it. Right? Okay. Okay. I don't in any way undermine the difficulty of what I'm asking of us. However, what options are there? When you realize that, when you realize really our back's against the wall here, and the more we seek comfort away from something, assures that it will return that much more encouraged by our reaction, then it's very sobering. Yes. I had a very and especially humility today. I, I'm part of a team, and some of the team members that I, I criticized some of the team members that I was with several weeks ago. And today I had the same criticism leveled against me, but I thought they didn't unrelated. And as I was sitting today, it was sending Meta towards the colleagues that I felt I hurt. But it, it was not as easy to feel comfortable <clears throat> with the hurt of myself. With the what? The, the, the hurt that I felt. Right. The error that you felt of yourself, yes. It was that way that you hold yourself that led to the judgment in the beginning, in the first place. Uh, this man says that uh, he, uh, a few weeks ago, leveled a, a, uh, just a judgment, a criticism on his colleagues, and now the colleagues are criticizing him in the same way, and um, which is a very quick a karma dose of karma, right? <laughs> so you, you really see that uh, this, this thing is all wired so that it's coming back at us at some time or other. And you saw you got an immediate dose of that, which is very can be very enlivening. But what I want to take us into what I call a radical accountability, because unless we get this, unless we get the fact that there are never okay, now I'm using an absolute term there are no exceptions to this term. And I'm sure that you will wrangle over this f for years until you come to the fact that there are no exceptions. There are no external problems. Nothing externally is the cause for our emotions. The cause for emotions is this organ, 
mind and body. And given certain conditions that we perceive externally, this thing emotes in a certain way. And a certain logic comes up from those emotions, be it loneliness or criticism, which then can hook a certain way of thinking about ourselves and other people, which reinforces the emotional response, and on it goes. So when we're going to be taking this apart, we have to start with the understanding that this is happening in this mind and body, that we are creating the conditions of the world. We are creating the problems that we perceive in this mind and body. If there is even one, even the slightest tendency to externalize blame, you have invalidated the Four Noble Truths. You've trashed them. You've walked away from Buddhism. Nowhere in the Buddhist teaching does it talk about that. The conditions for our suffering are self-inflicted. Okay, so then that's... So doesn't mean that there aren't communicative reasons to tell people, talk to people about unskillful things they are doing. There are. You don't become blinded by everything and claim everything is your fault. In fact, none of it is your fault either, for that's just further blame. We're not pointing outward and we're not pointing inward. This is not about me holding the trials and tribulations of my life and further believing in my own deficiency as a human being. No. Where is this human being, this person that is to blame? These are conditions that are arising, minds, conditions. Certain things arising, certain perceptions occur, certain emotions follow, and thoughts follow that. And the whole thing gets going like a snowball down a hill. So we start with radical accountability. Emotions are in here, not out there, and they're not caused by things out there. One, There's no externalizing blame and no internalizing blame. This isn't because I'm so, God, it's all me and I knew it, you know, and here. So we just sense of inward despondency that we love to feel because we, most of us harbor the assumptions for that feeling. Those assumptions are what we were talking about in terms of self-inadequacy. That those assumptions harbor feelings of self-disgust and the burdens of life all being on, you know, all of that. It's a complete nonsense. Where is the, what is this thing? The quicker we come to that resolution of understanding and asking those questions, the quicker the rug gets pulled out from under that sense of me. The quicker that happens, because the sense of me exists within the blame issue, and the judgment, and the resistance to externalization, the well, what's happening externally. So let's just do this in one simple act. What is this? Who is it that sees out of these eyes? Who is it that hears 
not what I hear or what I see, but what is it that sees? So let us start there. That's the right spiritual orientation. And stop trying to fix our life by creating more tension associated with it. Inward tension, external tension. I have, I'm not a problem solver on that front. But what is the foundation on which all problems arise? Is itself a problem which only needs an investigative look, glance. What is this thing? Yes. Good. So she says that, if I understand the question correctly, that no matter what happens to you in life, you feel that that's exactly where you need to be. It's not where you shouldn't have been, and that's why this thing occurred, but it's exactly where you need to be in order to learn from what is occurring. Right. So that's a very um, skillful way to address all difficulties. Not that I screwed up and that's why I'm having to face this problem. But that the problem itself needs to be faced and nothing was screwed up. I mean, you may have made some mistakes, but what eventually it led to was a confrontation with this, with these emotions, these feelings, whatever it is that we're having in this moment. And that's what life in its essence is, can be used for, is to sort of clean up areas of trash that we still spew out in terms of external blame or internal blame. And life was really for that purpose. And it'll forever take us to those areas. Forever. And but then you be, but if you don't use it in the right way, those experiences can lead to a reinforcement of the sense of self failure. You know, I had this problem and this problem today and I had a terrible day. You had a great day. Look at it from a spiritual perspective. You had a great day. You just weren't up to seeing in that way. Or the attitude, weren't associating life with the right attitude, wise attitude. That's what this whole thing is about. Not to work on yourself so that you'll never have any difficulty, so that it'll all be smooth, so there'll be flat land, right? No EEG. Like this. It'll happen, but it'll... <laughs> I wouldn't wish it prematurely. It's not about having everything smooth sailing. You know, so there's never any, you know, never any challenge to life. 
Not at all. Yes. Yes. No, no, no. No, not at all. The question was about the young man that I said said he didn't have any understanding how you could not be enmeshed in thinking and still live. That's really he he just couldn't understand a life that was lived outside of thought. Couldn't understand. So it's very important to understand thought. I hope we. let me just let me just show you how confiscating thought is. That the immediacy of a perception of of a contact, there is a recognition factor associated with it. That's the thought about it and the history we've had with something. And when we invest in what we see from that point of view, the recognition of what we see, then we only see what that mind allows us to interpret what we see. We only see what we interpret what we see, right? Now, if you only see what you interpret what you see, then you only see from what you've experienced before, right? You've had those like experiences before, and we generalize out. It may not be the same shape as that human being I knew back then, but it's a human being. And so there's ability of the mind to generalize out, even though they're seeing something new, and, and uh, attack it with an old thought and an old perception. So, essentially, when we look out of our eyes, we only see the past. When we hear in our ears, we only listen from the past. Right? It's like having albums in front of us. And we go through the file cabinet of our history very quickly, and associate past experiences with present happenings. Where is there anything new? Where is there any wonderment, mystery? Where is there anything that can be more than what our mind says it is? Everything is held to just what thought says it is. The point of meditation is to begin to see that life lived from thought, the trance of thought, is how our lives have been for as long as we've been living them. But that there's another dimension that can perceive life outside of the details and exactitude of the mind's interpretation, even though that's a part of it, it's not held and confiscated by only it being what it's known life to be. Then there is the wonder of, of things, even in, within the recognition. You don't lose the recognition factor, but then the whole thing has an aura of wonderment around it. So everything is new and known at the same moment. Does, so you know how to open doors and get back home, and yet everything, nothing is confiscated by just the functional aspect of it. That is the spiritual path. Now, where does the sense of self come in? The sense of self 
creates the functional relationship to life so that it will have a secure place in being able to move within it. It loves the sense of knowing about things. So it leads with the knowing. So if we lead our life with the sense of knowing, we lead from the sense of me knowing about it. And we are held in confinement to that particular dualistic approach to living. Where is there, you see, you, we can undermine it very quickly by stopping this madness. The mind has a trump card, and it's a big one. It's called fear. It says, whoa, I don't want, I know, what am I getting into here? You know, it all gets kind of funny. Many of us have that experience when we are meditating. After meditation, we get up. When we're meditating, we don't know what we are. If you're honest and stop reasserting yourself in your meditation, I'm seeing this, this is another experience, I've had this experience before, you can become very sophisticated meditators and never move beyond that sophistication. But that's not what meditation is. It's to take us into the wonderment, to have a brief respite from the knowing. Because when we close our eyes, we're shielding off the recognition factor from from the visual, and we're going in and we're not working the knowing factor. We're not moving on the jungle gym, bar after bar after bar. We're just stopping and listening, receiving life rather than imprinting upon it, rather than forming everything out of every experience. We're receiving it. We're resting in awareness. Resting in awareness and letting life come to us unformed. And in that unformed quality, we're not formed. You can see, you'll get a sense, you'll come out of it and you'll feel kind of vague, a sense of self-vagueness, right? When you meditate, aren't you vague? You should be vague, not distinct. That's what the meditation takes us into, vagueness. But because we don't like vagueness, I don't like it, I find myself doing things as soon as the meditation's over to come back into a greater distinction, greater definition. Turn on the radio, you know. Go downstairs and start working. Get productive. Right? Not stay soft. Stay relaxed. Just when you open your eyes, just stay soft. Let it all just stay soft. Like right now, just look through soft eyes at the world around you. You see, when you do that, feel yourself getting vague. As this gets fuzzy, you get fuzzy. When that's distinct, you're distinct. See? It works in tandem. In fact, it's only one thing working there. If you want to know oneness, you aren't going to get there through two-ness. <laughs> you can't find your way to like a <laughs> See, where effort, you can't effort, you know, we love the effort, but it's not like that. It's the other way. It's the other way. It's the way in which we don't want to go because it's vague. I get vague. 
But you live very comfortable with vagueness at some point. It's not a problem. Why is it a problem? Because when we're vague, something else comes out. But if you're so interested in you coming out, then you will come out. But if you notice what comes out when you don't come out, it's really quite beautiful. Something else comes out. Give it some time and notice what comes out when you're not coming out. It's really quite amazing what comes out when you're not there. Just a minute. Let me... Let me. Everything comes out when you're not there. Everything comes out when you're not there. Everything you have most desired for your life comes out when you're not there. Why are we so interested in reforming when nothing comes out that we really want when we're formed except protection from the vagueness? We got it backwards, people. So anyone who hasn't asked a question? Yes. Yes. It's one form. That's right. Yes. It it's it's one. It's a. Um, I don't. Uh, at some point in practice, it's not dependent upon closing your eyes. It's helpful in the beginning to bring your attention internally and to see what's going on in there. So, visualization, visualizing, keeps you externalized. But in Zen practice, for instance, they keep their eyes open and just look down. Even in some of the Tibetan practices, they do that. So use it both ways. You can stay very soft and unformed even while vision is occurring. So it's not to be afraid of vision. But it helps early on when you don't have that sense door operating which keeps reaffirming the world again and again in its distinctive quality, you see. So if, if, you're, if I'm trying to increase my, um, the, the presence of the beneficial effects of meditation in my daily life, right. is there a way to use vision while I'm meditating to help me remember the, that, that feeling when I'm interacting with the world? Uh, well, um, I wouldn't t- focus too much on trying to see things vaguely because the trying will keep you, you know, it's, it's the wrong way. Just start receiving. Go the other way. Instead of leaning in to your any sense door, just settle back and allow, it's as if things are happening to you rather than you're making them happen. So you are, you're in a passive position rather than an active one. So it's like, whoa, look at this. Whoa. You see? I mean, let's just get into that. Get into that posture here. Just let experience occur and don't do anything about it. So not resisting anything that's coming in. I mean, what's coming in? Sight, sound, smells, taste, thought, and physical sensation. That's all that's coming in. Where is there something that I need to run from? So let's just let it come in. Six avenues. That's it. 
in a very famous sermon, the bird who said, that's all there is. And 12,000 monks were enlightened or something like that. So let's just see if we can do it. You see, that sense of someone having to organize it and make sure that it's okay and to get it all down and plan it and have it all set up so that I can now maneuver my way through it and control it is is not needed. It's the lack of faith. We put our faith in ourselves, not in life. If you shift the focus of faith so that you go, okay, let me just see if this thing works on its own. What if I'm not needed? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Let me see. I'm going to test it. What happens is you get very clear as you get vague. As we get vague, we get very clear. And there's a, an intelligence that's not individually owned that knows to get out of the way of coming cars that are coming on, to pick up children who are in the middle of the road. We don't have to worry that we're going to check ourselves out in some way that's going to lead to disasters. In fact, something much more intelligent takes over. Okay, so I want to know what that is. Don't you? Okay, so let's, we got to back off. We've got to back off the gas pedal. Let's see if this thing drives itself. You ever do that on a bicycle? You know, like you see your friends go, no hands on the thing. God almighty, I can't. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then, oh, wait a minute. Let's see this thing. Now, I don't suggest you do that in a car, and I'm not suggesting that kind of thing. I'm not suggesting that at all that the life that we are manifests within life itself, is life itself, so that the way the body moves and what comes at us and the discerning quality within it is all part of the abiding within. But that's not what we do. We lean forward constantly. Okay, thank you for a nice evening together. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.